Please be seated. Turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Uh, just two more sermons on the book of Revelation. So today we come to our next to last sermon. Um, I was trying to figure out how to arrange uh, these sermons out of the last uh, what is it, 16 or so verses of Revelation chapter uh, 22. There are a number of themes that are repeated in different places. and I kind of wanted to group some of those uh, themes together as we address them. And so I made the decision uh, to actually look together today at verses 6 through 9 and 18 through 21. So we have the unusual situation where we're going to look at the final verses of Revelation in the next to last sermon. Uh, in Revelation, Lord willing, next week uh, we will be in verses 10 through 17. Uh, so Revelation 22, uh, verses 6 through 9, and verses 18 through 21. Uh, let's now uh, hear God's word. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's once again seek the face of the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God, this is a solemn book. And these are solemn words that we have just read today. This is your word to us, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray, O Lord, that it would penetrate into the very marrow of our being yet today, Lord. Oh, use your word in our midst for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, uh, amen. 
As we come to these uh, final verses in the book of Revelation, we come to what is really an epilogue uh, to this book. With our passage last week ending at Revelation 22 and verse 5, that vision of what the new heavens and the new earth will be in the new Jerusalem, the redeemed church of God dwelling with God for all eternity, that vision ended the end of verse And so we come to this epilogue, but in saying that it's an epilogue, it doesn't mean that it's any less important, kind of just the opposite. It now gives us opportunity at the end of this very long series on Revelation, and it has been, brothers and sisters, nearly a year and a half that we have been in this book together. It gives us opportunity to reflect, and to think, and to pray. To say, Lord, I pray that after hearing for a year and a half this book opened up, Lord, I pray that I would not go away unchanged. I do indeed pray that that will be our hope and that will be our prayer over these next couple of weeks uh, together as we close this book. Uh, The Apostle John has some very important words to share with us from his vision in today's uh, passage. And we're going to look at uh, these points under under four different headings. Uh, First of all, the authority that assures us. Secondly, the response that is required of us. Third, the worship that humbles us. And fourth, the hope that inspires us. Those four points out of these verses, you'll see which verses I'm referring to under each of these points as we go through them, but the authority that assures us, the response that is required of us, uh, the worship that humbles us, and the hope that inspires us. Well, the first of these things is the authority that assures us. Immediately after giving us this vision of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, in verse 6, The Lord Jesus follows those words by saying, he says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Well, what is the Lord doing? Immediately following on this extraordinary vision that John has given, here the Lord is assuring John of the complete inspiration of this vision, or what we would say the inspiration of the book of Revelation. In other words, that this book's origin, and indeed we can expand it from there to say the origin of the entire Bible, is none other than God himself. It is God's word. You notice how the Lord described himself in verse 6. He describes himself as the God of the spirits of the prophets. What an interesting expression. Think about it for a second. Here he's describing the prophets. Who are the prophets? Well, they are those who are God's appointed messengers, both Old Testament and New Testament. Those who spoke revelation from God. Now it says that the prophets had spirits, namely human spirits, right? 
inward thoughts and feelings, just like you and I have. And so, these spirits, these spirits of the prophets, were not bypassed in the production of Holy Scripture. In fact, as you read your Bibles, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, you know that different parts of the Bible were written by different human authors, and each one, as it were, has the stamp of that human author upon him. We can speak of Paul's style and Paul's theology, as opposed to that of Moses or David or Solomon or Isaiah or Luke or Peter or John, consistent with the others and yet distinct. And why was that? Well, it was because each human author engaged fully their own mind, wrote in their own style, emphasized particular truths, but nonetheless, this is what this is saying, their human spirits that were utilized were entirely governed and controlled by God. The God of the spirits of the prophets is the one who has revealed these things. So that the words that each human author wrote in the pages of Holy Scripture are the very words which God superintended so that the final product was, in every part, the very Word of God. He is the God of the spirits of the prophets. I don't know that you've ever thought before to look in Revelation 22.6 for a beautiful description of what inspiration is. The Bible's inspiration, but there it is in Revelation 22.6. But he goes on to say that in giving us this book of Revelation, that angels were especially the agents of God's revelation. This God of the spirits of the prophets, what did he do to reveal himself, especially here in Revelation? Well, he sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. God sent his angel... Don't angels have a rather prominent place in the giving of this book of Revelation? We have read time and again of angels being used to reveal certain truths. The angels showed his servants, especially John, and through John, us, what must soon take place. And so John can say, verse 8, I, John am the one who heard and saw these things. And so if you're following this, it's saying that this revelation was given through an apostle, John. But it wasn't given just through an apostle, it was an angel who gave it to the apostle John. But it's not just from the angel either. Who, who sent the angel? Well, it was none other than the living God himself. And so here in verse 6 and then also in verse 8, we have this affirmation that this book that we are given, the book of Revelation, is a book that is entirely from God Himself. It is, has originated with no one less than God Himself. And so that point is made at the very end of the book of Revelation, and it's actually exactly the same point that was made at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, in verses 1 through 3, 
in the very first sermon that I preached on Revelation, I preached on these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Do you see? He begins by making that point, and now at the very end of Revelation, he says, oh, remember, all of this wasn't simply my idea, wasn't simply the idea of an angel, but rather it came through John from an angel because the Lord himself sent that. These are all the words of God. And so since this book comes from God himself, it is a book that is absolutely trustworthy and true. We see that in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. Now, he just said that last chapter as well, uh, back in chapter 21 in verse 5, after telling us of the glories of the new heaven and a new earth. Uh, remember, Jesus said, I know this sounds so extraordinarily wonderful that you're asking, is this just a figment of my own imagination? And Jesus said, 21.5, uh, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, what he was saying about that, he now, at the end of Revelation, says is true concerning everything that I have revealed. The Lord Jesus says, these words are dependable, they are reliable, they are trustworthy, and they are true. That is, they accord completely with reality. This is not a book of fiction. This is the absolute truth given by the living God. One writer put it this way, speaking of the book of Revelation, he said, we have read many strange things in this book, many amazing things, many delightful things, and many terrible things in this book. But one thing is sure. Everything we have read is true. All the messages of salvation, all the warnings of judgment, all the statements about history, trustworthy and true, are two great words that characterize everything about God, and so everything about God's Word. Let me just apply this right now to say what great assurance this should give to me and to you. You know, there are lots of things about this life that I do not know and that you do not know. But this, this is saying, you can know as absolute certainty that God is the supreme ruler, that Christ is a complete savior, that history is under his sovereign control and is fulfilling his purposes of salvation that any suffering you undergo for the cause of Jesus Christ is not suffering that is in vain, that His kingdom is going to last when all the other kingdoms of this world have failed, and that your Jesus is going to return and bring you into restored and perfected creation where you shall be with Him and behold His faith. Faith, Jesus says, over all of that, trustworthy and true.
You might not know much, but you can know that with absolute certainty. It is the most reliable thing in all of the universe. What assurance that gives our heart amidst a topsy-turvy world to know that these are things revealed to us that are absolute truth. So that is the assurance, uh, uh, or th- that is, uh, 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 what was my first point? The authority that assures us. <laughs> the authority that assures us. Secondly, now, uh, let's look at the response that is required of us. How do we respond to this trustworthy and true book of Revelation? Well, we're told a couple of things. First, negatively, there is a warning. There is a warning, and it's found in verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Here's a warning. It's a warning that applies to the whole of the book of Revelation. You know, I think providentially, you know, this is the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, right towards the very end of this last chapter of the last book of the Bible. I think we can say very accurately that what is told here about Revelation is true of all of the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. And the warning about them is very simple. The warning is, do not tamper with God's revelation. Don't add to the book. Don't take anything away from the book. Use a kind of very imperfect illustration, but maybe it'll help. Now, if you are a police detective, you're working on a case, one of your jobs as a police detective is to gather the evidence, right? To collect the evidence. You don't create the evidence, right? That gets thrown out if you do that. You don't take away some of the evidence. That's also tampering with it. Your job is to collect the evidence that is there. The evidence is given. You gather that evidence. Well, dear friends, in a similar way, the Lord has given us His revelation. It is not our job to add to it or to come up with new revelation. It is not our job to take away anything from it either. But rather it is to receive it whole and entire. To use theological terms, we would say that God's revelation is both final and it is sufficient. It's final and it is sufficient. This is a very um, relevant warning, really in every age of of the church. You know, in Jesus' time, uh, there were those who wanted both to add to and to take away from God's Revelation. The Pharisees were those who sought to add to 
what the Old Testament taught in a legalistic way, piling on man-made rules to God's revelation. But the Sadducees were exactly the opposite. They were the theological liberals of their day. They said, well, we can't believe in things like miracles or the resurrection of the dead, and so we're going to take those things out of the Old Testament. What was true in Jesus' day is no different in our day. We have those in our own day who would both seek to add to and to take away from God's book. There are in our day legalists who seek to add man-made rules to God's commands. The Roman Catholic Church uh, not only adds the Apocrypha to Holy Scripture, but even more significantly, I believe, places church tradition and the Pope's infallible decrees on a level with Scripture. Pope Francis, along with all of the others, is adding to God's book. Occults and false religions also add uh, to God's book. The Book of Mormon is an additional revelation. Or Mary Baker Eddy, Science and Health, functions in the same way. There are those who would say, the Bible is not sufficient in itself. But Jesus warns us, do not add to this book. Do not add the Holy Spirit. Scriptures. But similarly, we ought not to take away from God's book. Uh, there are in our day so-called uh, theological progressives who believe that, well, God's statements, some of them uh, regarding cosmology or morality or history or miracles, well, they're no longer believable in our generation. So they say what we can do is we can uh, discard the Bible's husk and find its true core. Well, the Bible makes clear, does it not, that when it comes to the Scriptures, there is no husk and there is no core. Right? All of it is God's Word. All of it is serious. None of it is to be discarded. And so to tamper with God's Word is serious. And The Bible makes clear that you will fall under the judgment of Almighty God. You will not share in the blessings of eternal life with God if you are seeking to distort or to uh, tamper with uh, the Word of God. That's how we must respond to it. Don't tamper with it negatively. But then positively, it tells us something else. A positive command, and to this command there is attached a blessing. And we find this in verse 7 when he says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. How must you respond to this book? Don't tamper with it, but positively keep it. Keep it. You must keep God's word. What does that mean practically? Well, it means that you need to know it. Study it, to hear it. You need to believe it when it is spoken. You need to hold fast to it. You need, with God's help, to seek to put into practice everything that it says. This really 
reminds us, does it not, of what the purpose of this book of Revelation has been all along. You know, the purpose was not simply to kind of fire our imagination or uh, to feed our curiosity. Revelation isn't the kind of uh, intellectual puzzle that we're supposed to try to figure out. That's not all that it is. But rather, as Paul says, all truth is unto godliness. And this is a book that is meant to have a very practical effect in your life. It's a book that we are to keep. And what that means is that this is a book that should feed your faith. That you should see Christ risen and ascended and coming again for His people, the all-sufficient Savior, the Savior, the lover of your soul. In Revelation, you ought to see Jesus Christ and love Him more. Similarly, it is a book that should challenge you. It's a book that should challenge you to hold fast to Christ when persecuted. Willing to take your place among those martyrs that cry out to God if necessary. Knowing that you have the seal of God that is placed upon you in this life. It's a book that challenges you to resist the temptations of this world. That you remember what ungodly Babylon, the ways of this world is coming to. It's a book that enables you to see through the false uh, philosophies and ideologies and values of our day. It's a book that should lead you to reorient your time and your energies toward the new creation. Not seeking lasting satisfaction in this world but knowing that it will be yours in the world to come. Oh dear friends, this is a book that should provide you time and again with uh, deep encouragement to your soul. It should calm your anxieties as you rest in God's providential control over all of history and as you are assured of His victory over death. It is a book that should inspire your worship as you remember in worship that you are joining with that vast throng that is currently in heaven and you anticipate that day of final worship with the whole of the new Jerusalem. Oh, dear friends, do you see it is a, on every part, it is a practical book that ought to help us in our faith. That is what it means to keep this book of Revelation. So I simply ask you, and it is a good question for you to ask yourself, are you keeping this book? What practical difference has this book of Revelation made in your life? What difference will it make in your life going forward? And so that, uh, that is our second point. Now thirdly, thirdly, I want us to see uh, the worship that humbles us. The worship that humbles us. The authority that assures us, the response that is required of us. Thirdly now, the worship that humbles us. Well, verses 8 and 9 give us an interesting account. John has just received, again, this extraordinary uh, revelation. He's utterly overwhelmed. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and I saw them, he says this, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, 
and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. It's actually a repeat of what happened earlier in chapter 19 and verse and verse 10 when he fell down at his feet to worship the angel. And even then the angel said, you must not do that. What, what is going on here? Why is John falling down before these angels uh, to worship? Could it be that John was simply so staggered and overwhelmed by the greatness of this revelation that he was perhaps unable for a moment to distinguish Christ from the angel he was hearing these voices, or perhaps it was just simply that he lost his bearings, and he just it was his instinct, these things are so great that I just must bow down and I must worship. Well, we, we don't really know. We don't really know why it was that John did this. But what is important, I think, is not so much John's motivation, which we can't know, but rather the angel's response, which we can. Uh, Rick Phillips says that angels are worship specialists. So we should listen carefully when they teach us about this topic. And I think that's exactly right. What does the angel say when John bows down to worship? The angel says, with a kind of horror, you must not do that. Worship God. This angel reminds us that the most important thing about worship isn't, first of all, how it makes us feel or how it inspires us, but rather the all-important thing about worship is that it is centered upon God and that it gives Him glory. Worship. Isn't, we don't simply worship. We worship something or someone. And the Christian is called to worship God. Worship must be all about Him. And dear friends, if it is a horror to this angel that an angel would be worshipped who comes straight from the presence of God How much worse are all other forms of idolatry? Worshipping our possessions. Worshipping our talents. Worshipping our bank accounts. Worshipping our appearance. Worshipping celebrities. Or worshipping any false god. These things are a horror. Don't give any of those things the supreme place in your thoughts and the supreme, don't make them the supreme object of your affections. Don't make those things your first love. The angel says to any other of these things, do not do it. I think it's interesting here too that. John was tempted to worship the angel, the messenger of this good news. We were just looking at our Bible study, were we not, on uh, this last Wednesday night at 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Don't worship even any messenger of the gospel. But rather, when we receive God's truth, it ought to lead to this great end in our lives, that we long 
to, and desire to worship and to glorify God alone. Worship God. Do you know that when you and I worship God, we actually achieve our identity as the people of God. This is what we were made for. And actually, what we do then is rather than worship the angels, we actually join with the angels in what we were created to do. You see that in verse 9, when he says, do not do it, you must not do that, he then gives a reason that is, on the one hand, a reason why you shouldn't worship an angel, but is, at the same time, a reason why you should worship God. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant, the angel says, with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. So don't worship the fellow servant, but worship God. And what do you do when you worship God? You are joining with the angels and with those saints who have gone before to do the very thing that you were created to do. We are united in a brotherhood, as it were, with the angels who worship endlessly before the throne. Um, I was reminded in one of the commentaries that I read this week of words that um, Pastor Eric Alexander, who actually also went to be with the Lord just a few months ago, Pastor Eric Alexander preached in a sermon in 1998 uh, in, in Chicago. I was actually present at this, at the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. And 1998, I heard Eric Alexander preach on these very words out of Revelation 22, 8, and 9. He said these words in that sermon. He said, The thing that unites apostles and angels and the people of God with them in every generation is that their proper place is to be bowed together before the throne of the eternal God, exalting him to the unique place of honor and glory and to give him the worship that he is due. Isn't that extraordinary? That when we worship, then more than at any other time are we united with the saints who have gone before and with the vast number of angels who themselves are offering worship to God. And does that thought, dear friends, not elevate the importance of what we do here every Lord's Day morning and evening as the very most important thing that you could possibly do in the course of this earthly pilgrimage? That we are those who in response to this glorious revelation of God, we are those who bow down and who worship. It is the worship that humbles us and that exalts God. But now fourthly and finally, I want us to see the hope that inspires us. The hope that inspires us. In, in verse 7, and then next week in verse 12, and then also in verse 20, the phrase is repeated three different times in these short verses to close the book of Revelation. And it teaches us what is the central expectation of the people of God. 
that is revealed to us here in Revelation, and it is these words, verse 7, the words of the Lord Jesus, and behold, I am coming soon. And again, verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Friends, the promise is, is that this Jesus, who became man for our sake, who hung on Calvary's cross, and who was raised from that tomb on the third day, and who ascended into heaven, and now rules in glory as king over all things for the sake of his church, that it is this same Jesus who is going to return He will certainly return. He will personally return. And with His return, He will consummate all the blessings of our redemption. And as the book of Revelation comes to a close, it says, don't don't forget to keep this at the very center of your vision. The Lord Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. Now you might ask the question, is it really coming soon? These words were written some, what, uh, 1,930-ish years ago, something like that. Okay. Is this really a trustworthy and true statement of our, of our Lord that surely He is coming soon? And the answer to that is yes, it is trustworthy and true. He is coming soon. In a, different, a few different ways we can say that. He is coming soon because His coming is the next great event in God's redeeming purposes. On God's great eschatological calendar of what is going to happen, the next great and significant event is His return. We live now, it says, between the first and second comings of Christ, and these are the last days. This whole age is the last days because He has now ascended and we await His return. So in that sense, yes, He is coming soon. But He's also coming soon because it is soon in the grand scope of all eternity. In your perspective, 2,000 years is a long time. You remember what Second Peter says in answer to the same question, with the Lord, a thousand years is but a day. In the grand scope of eternity, what is this time? But not very long. Jesus is coming again soon. But then it is also considered soon in that we must always be found ready for His coming. That is, the Bible encourages us over and over again to have our eyes firmly placed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be faithful in His service, to be reminded that this world is not our home, but that Jesus indeed soon is going to come and is going to make our eternal home uh, with Him. And so for these reasons, it is absolutely true that our Lord Jesus Christ, when He first said this 2,000 years ago, is coming soon. And we can say today, Indeed, He is surely coming soon. Imagine what an encouragement this would have been to John's own heart in exile on the Isle of Patmos. This old man 
exiled from the church, and he hears those words, verse 20, Jesus himself saying to him, Surely I am coming soon. And we hear John's response to him, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that is the way that the church should respond in every age. With that same kind of eager excitement. You know, one thing that we have learned from the book of Revelation is that the coming return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the judgment day is not something that you and I should dread. We are not to be afraid of it. But rather, dear friends, you and I are the bride of Jesus Christ eagerly awaiting that wedding day. We ought to be desiring it, waiting for it, hoping for it, expecting it, longing for it. We ought to be able to say, upon hearing these words, surely I am coming soon, to say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And I simply ask you, is that the the cry of your heart? And does that near return of the Lord Jesus inspire you in your day-to-day life? On the one hand, to hold loosely onto the things of this world. To be generous with your time and with your possessions. To devote yourself to Jesus and to His kingdom. Does it inspire you to live at peace with others? To worship God wholeheartedly? To witness to others and to pray fervently for their salvation, knowing that the time is short and that the things of eternity are so important? Does this promise as well lead you to be joyful in your expectation? So, dear friends, with such a promise as this, what a joyful people we should be as Christians. Surely, he says, I am coming soon. We say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Might the Lord help us, even as we bring this book to a close next week, Keep our eyes upon the coming Lord and to look with expectation to Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the book of Revelation. We thank You that it is a revelation from You that is true and trustworthy. We pray for the grace, O Lord, not to tamper with Your revelation in any way, but rather to keep it in all of its parts. O Lord, our God, we pray that we would be devoted to your worship, not the worship of any other thing, but your worship alone and join with angels in it. Gracious God, we pray as well that our eyes would be set upon your near return, Lord Jesus. Even as you tell us, surely you are coming soon, we respond and say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So make that the very panting, the desiring of our hearts, we pray. Help us to live in light of it. We pray all these things.